Disney Decipher, a podcast helping you save money, time, and stress as you plan your Disney vacation. On today's episode, we talk to Nathan Firesheets, completer of the Disney Global Ride Challenge. Find all the episodes of this podcast at DisneyDeciphered.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you find podcasts, and we really appreciate it if you could leave us a positive review. If you'd like to support the podcast, check us out on Patreon.com slash DisneyDeciphered, where you'll receive bonus content. Or you can support the podcast at no cost to you by using me as your travel agent. Get started by emailing Joseph Chung at TravelMation.net. If you have any questions, email us DisneyDeciphered at gmail.com, tweet at us at www.deciphered on Twitter, or find us on Facebook and Instagram, DisneyDeciphered. This is part one of a two-part episode. The bonus episode will drop later this week. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Joe from As the Joe Flies. And I'm Leslie from Trips with Tykes. And welcome back to Disney Deciphered. So we have an awesome episode for you today, an awesome guest. So we're going to get all the plugs out of the way at the beginning instead of the middle uh, like we do sometimes. So if you'd like to support our podcast, uh, check us out on patreon.com slash Disney Deciphered. Of course, you can find all our old podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Leslie, where can people find your work and connect with you? I am at Trips with Tykes everywhere on social media, tripswithtykes.com. And super excited about our guest today. So I'll leave it at that. Yes. And you can find me at As Joe Flies all over social media. If you're looking to book a Disney trip, email me, Joseph Chung at Travelmation. Dot net and you can find us now on youtube as well youtube.com slash at disney deciphered which leads me into our guest who you can find at a underscore coaster underscore story on twitter or on youtube where we're hoping and we're waiting for a very exciting video sometime in the next year or so nathan fire sheets the completer of the first coast to coast parkeology challenge that means he started in disneyland rode all the attractions there flew over to disney world rode all the attractions there in two days and then just of course recently uh has become disney famous we would say it is right uh for completing all the operating attractions at the 12 disney theme parks all around the world in 12 days nathan thank you so much for coming on the podcast excited to have you and you know congratulations again on an amazing accomplishment Hey, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I like to think of you as a modern day Phileas Fogg. We will forget about Disney's <laughs> uh, <laughs> Disney's rendition of Around the World in 80 Days because it was terrible. But um, around the Disney World in 12 days, I guess, is what you did, right? Yeah, I'd say that's a fair assessment. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I'm most interested, first and foremost, who are you? Where did you come from? <laughs> I mean, I've followed you on Twitter for a long time, but I'm one of the OGs and you've kind of really like burst onto the scene. You know, how did you get interested in Disney and, you know, what do you do sort of in real life when not riding lots of coasters? Also, before you answer that, Nathan, dating us immediately with the Around the World in 80 Days reference, Leslie. Uh, just... <laughs> I mean, he got it. <laughs> I know, but uh, I'm going to say 70% of people listening to this didn't get it. But I'm sorry, Nathan, <laughs> to cut you off. Please continue. Yeah, so I am, by day, I am an audiovisual systems engineer and programmer. Um, I like to say that I make fancy conference rooms. I deal with enterprise scale, you know, conference room, video conferencing, audio conferencing, all that kind of stuff. Um, I've been doing that for about 11 years now. My Disney background is actually kind of interesting because I really didn't start doing a bunch of Disney stuff until I started getting into the challenge things within the last five years. Um, I went to Magic Kingdom one time when I was four years old uh, for one day, 
And that's, uh, I don't know if, if people saw the, the picture of me on the star jets that I posted. Uh, but that was, that was one of the, the things from there kind of tied in, came full circle with, with the challenge, uh, ending on the Astro Orbiter, which replaced the star jets. But that was from my one childhood visit to Disney at four. I was terrified of the uh, the little tiny kitty roller coaster they had at the local amusement park. Had a buffalo head on the front and it was loud. And just as a kid, like I just I I wouldn't go anywhere near it. And then on a band trip in middle school to Six Flags, I was grouped in the I'm willing to try roller coasters, but I'm not a huge thrill seeker group. Uh, and that was kind of my first exposure to adult coasters. And I decided I really didn't like wooden coasters, but those steel ones were pretty okay. I've I've mellowed on the wooden coaster thing since then, but I had a bad bad first experience. And then uh, my senior year of high school, we did four days at Disney World on our senior trip, and so that was the next time that I got to Disney. Nathan has been on a lot of podcasts. We've been doing the tour, the circuit, uh, and I suggest that uh, you check those out because those are some really great episodes. One thing that I haven't heard, and obviously I haven't listened to every single podcast that you've been on yet, is I'm curious, like. You told the story about how you were visiting Disneyland and then you were like, oh, let me just try this parkeology thing, which for those of you who don't know, parkeology is trying to ride every single attraction in one day. And obviously you fell in love with it. That was five years ago. And, you know, you've been you've completed multiple challenges since then, coast to coast, 12 and 12, like we discussed. How much of it do you feel like is the challenges what has gotten you into Disney and how much of it is, you know, you just like Disney as a product because, you know, Leslie and I, I mean, we just love all things Disney. So I'm curious how that broke down for you. Yeah. So I, uh, after kind of, I got done with high school and stuff, I did some other roller coaster trips, but it was really just kind of here and there and not really any Disney stuff until I got done with college and I was starting to figure out, okay, what's my last hurrah going to be before I go into the real world. And I started planning my first or my last ever spring break and that was when I took my first trip to Disneyland. And I was like, this is really cool. And then the year after that, I went back to Disney World on this Whirlwind Orlando trip. And it's like, okay, you know, that's fun. But still just very much touring it like a tourist. And it wasn't until my third visit back at Disneyland in 2018, where I walked in, saw a Main Street vehicle, went, hey, those are the things that trip people up doing the challenges. I should get on it and try to ride it. That stuff started kind of clicking. And I just tried to ride everything that day. And I ended up doing 50 of the 51 because Radiator Springs Racers broke down at the end of the night and didn't reopen. But that was kind of, that kind of got me in the challenge, that, that challenge bug. And before that, you know, I mean, I'd enjoyed visiting Disneyland, like and I enjoyed visiting Disney World, but I would say I was primarily just a theme park and roller coaster enthusiast. But also around that time in 2018, I'd gotten to the point where I'd visited all these theme parks all over the country. And towards the end of the year, I'd, I'd, I'd also visited um, some international stuff. And I was a little burnt out by just the generic theme park thing. I found that I was going to parks that I knew had rides I wasn't going to enjoy just to do them. And I was like, I need to do some kind of a reset. So when I got into this challenge thing, for me, that provided an opportunity for me to take a step back from the unfulfilling just going to theme parks just to go to them, uh, try something that's going to be new and different, and just kind of try to get a, a philosophical reset in place. So I had that that kind of July, I think it was July of 2018, that first kind of little nugget. And then I found myself back in LA in November for work thing, and kind of 
spur of a moment, I decided to buy a three-day park hopper, enjoy kind of half of a Friday, and then go for a challenge run that Saturday. And that was my first ever challenge run. Did that, loved it, got up the next morning feeling good, decided to go for it again, and did a back-to-back. And then after that, I was like, okay, I've got this 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 Disney challenge thing. Like, this is this is fun. Now I need to go buy a Disney World annual pass and go spend 2019 trying to complete in Orlando. And so that's what really kind of kicked off all of that for me. And I went back to Disneyland a couple times, did uh, uh, oxygen free with no fast passes, uh, then decided that wasn't hard enough. I needed to try to do all 79 attractions uh, and not just the rides, you know, and so that included some meet and greets that included, you know, some shows, the the animation Academy, you know, Tiki room, you know, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, you know, stuff like that. And it was just basically everything that was listed in the app, do that in a day. So I did that. And then finally um, on galaxy's edge opening day, I got my Disney world completion, did another one a few days later, then came back in uh, October and did the coast to coast challenge. And then I was like, okay, you know, like I've, I've done this, like that's the big, you know, grand thing. In January of 2020, I went out to Disneyland with my dad. It's the only time I've ever done a challenge run with anybody else. Uh, but we went out there for Rise of the Resistance opening weekend and did a run. And so that was super special to get to to share that with him. And I was kind of in a, a little bit of a, okay, I don't know what's next um, kind of phase. And then COVID hit and then the world changed and, you know, we've kind of been forced to to adapt and reassess things. And I guess, you know, in a way, like it happened and I was still in the Disney mode. So I, I kind of have never really left um, where that leaves me. I don't really know, but I like hanging out at Disneyland now. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's a cool place to go and do a challenge run, but it's also a cool place to just go have a vacation and be chill and ride some classic rides and not not make a huge big fuss about everything has got to be this big, awesome coaster experience. Like I can just go ride pirates of the Caribbean a a bunch of times and just enjoy my day. Uh, Or, you know, the teacups late at night, you know, when they're all lit up and looking super cool. So I've gotten to the point where I enjoy the vibe and everything. Um, And I still wouldn't say that I'm a huge like Disney person, but you know, it's like, I, I get it now. Got it. You're you're a parks person, so, yeah. so you've come by your come to your love of Disney through your love of I guess coasters, and then also I mean I think a lot of folks who do this parkeology challenge, every ride challenge. I mean they're very left brain, very analytical. Being an engineer, I mean I know sort of a lot of I'm an attorney. A lot of those of us in that community are in that as well. So I think I think there's definitely. Um, an element of just it it lights up something in your brain and oh yeah the, you get the problem solving yeah. logistics it's just yeah. it's that part is really fun and that adds a thing that you don't necessarily get when you're just going to a six flags park yeah exactly well that's a great segue to let's move into what you actually did and you have a great blow by blow of what you actually did on this global ride challenge on rope drop radio our, our friends over there so go, go give that a listen if you want to hear like the long form version but why don't you give us the short form version uh where did you start what parks did you do and in what order and then where did you finish it out yeah so i started in paris um because i wanted to get that intercontinental flight out of the way the front end of the trip so i wasn't having to do that mid trip and that also meant that when i ended it would be a short hop home so started in paris disneyland paris and walt disney studios uh had a bit of an adventure with transit strike that caused some fun but survived that 12 and a half hour flight from there to shanghai that was an experience 
Shanghai Disneyland is super cool, insanely crowded. The day that I was there was the day after they debuted the uh, the May Red Panda, and it was a sold out Saturday. So that was nuts. Thankful for Premier Access. Uh, I paid over three hundred bucks in Premier Access to skip the lines, but when Dumbo is an hour and Soren is three, it's worth every penny. So from there, uh, hopped to Hong Kong, and I had basically the afternoon and evening in Hong Kong, and then a little bit of time the next morning um, because my original flight from Hong Kong to Tokyo had gotten canceled and I had to move it up. So I was really trying to cram everything into that first day so that I could just have the morning for some re-rides. Managed to do that, got to uh, you know hang out and have a chill morning that next morning before flying to Tokyo. Then uh, two and a half days in Tokyo to do Disneyland, Disney Sea, and then a little bit of bonus time to re-ride Beauty and the Beast. Absolutely worth it. You should go. It is an amazing ride. One of the most impressive sets of animatronics I've ever seen. Then from there, a very long overnight flight to Anaheim. Got there midday and had to rush through everything at Disneyland in like 10 hours, 10 and a half hours, something like that. Didn't think I was going to finish and then managed the last last bit of the night once the crowds finally dissipated to get in and get everything done. I found out later that that day was actually a crowd level nine on touring plans. So I don't recommend trying to do all the rides on a level nine day, but I, I ended that on a very high note. was very excited and went to bed and woke up the next morning having slept through all of my alarms. Missed early entry for DCA, missed rope missed uh, the chance to get in there and get stuff done. And instead of being in and out of DCA in three and a half or four hours and then on a flight to Orlando at two, it took me 10. I again found out later that that's because that day was a crowd level 10 out of 10. Uh, It was St. Patrick's Day. It was a Friday. It was beautiful weather. They had their festival going on and people showed up. And that was not a fun experience. I definitely recommend if you are trying to do something that's time sensitive, um, set even more alarms, get a wake up call from the front desk, text your friends, be like, hey, if you haven't seen me post anything by this time of day, call me. I was following you pretty closely at that point, And I remember seeing you not post that morning. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he slept in. That was my first thought. And I was like, I have no way to contact him yeah, except she on Twitter. Texted that to me. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, that, was, that was rough. Well. Um, well, question then, for you related oh, yeah. to that is I'm curious, like for these parkeology challenges, is the grind the hardest part? You know, like, uh, you know, for example, people run the dopey, which is, you know, the 5k, 10k half and full marathon at Walt Disney World Marathon weekend. And they don't no one says the running is the hardest part. Everyone says the schedule is the hardest part waking up every single morning at 2.30 a.m. for four nights in a row. So for you, you know, for this um, global ride challenge and even your typical parkeology and the coast-to-coast challenge that you did, like, is that the hardest part, the scheduling, or is there something that, you know, us mere mortals don't know about? One of the big challenges you run into, uh, particularly on the Disney World side, it is only even possible to get a challenge completion on a small handful of days every year because you need the perfect combination of park hours and crowds and circumstances to go your way. Scheduling for a Disney World challenge is the most important thing, uh, just picking the right day. And sometimes you're not able to do that, and 
no matter what you do, even with perfect execution, there's no way you can possibly do it. Disneyland, I like to say a completion is possible on almost any day. And it's a lot more forgiving. There's a lot more roots to victory, so to speak. But the actual physical toll that they that, that these things take on your body is is not to be underestimated. Um, a Disney World run can be 18 to 24 miles of walking in a day. Disneyland, because everything's so compact, it's closer to 8 to 12. Uh, but then when you start stringing these together on multiple days, that adds up very, very quickly. And I definitely don't recommend it for people who haven't dipped their toes in that water, so to speak. Is Walt Disney World still possible with the two-hour park hopping? Like, has it, it been done? I, it I, has I... been done. So the the brothers, um, uh, I think their handle is at the brothers WDW. They pulled off a parkeology completion a few weeks ago. The first parkeology since COVID, and if anybody was going to do it, it was going to be them. They have like the most hustle of anybody. And you don't think about it, but just moving quickly through the parks makes a huge difference in aggregate once you're talking about 18, 20 plus miles. Even just a one mile an hour difference from a, th a three mile an hour walk average speed to a four mile an hour average walk over the course of that many miles is a huge time savings. You know, and, and they do it. You know, they have that hustle and they pulled it off. And if there's anybody that was going to do it, it's going to be them. I don't think I'm going to be going for another one. It's, you know, it's one of those things you have to have the perfect day scheduled and my schedule tends to not be flexible enough to let me just, you know, pop down there the way, the way that I did a couple of years ago. Uh, but it is possible. It's very, very, very unlikely. What do you think? Like, you know, for our listeners, we always discuss and debate what are like the best times to go crowd wise. I assume if you think there's only, you know, let's say two weeks, like 14 days out of the year that one could finish a parkeology challenge in Walt Disney World. Like if you were recommending someone to go at like, I assume that's the least busy time, least busy time combined with longest hours. Yeah, um, see, but that's the thing is they don't tend to run long hours on the least busy days. So you uh, have to have a, a minimum of like 16, 17 hours of park operation, but they're not going to run that long of hours if they don't expect the crowds to at least be a certain level. So what you need is a day where Disney is doing the park hours long enough where you're going to have the chance to do it, but where not as many people are actually going to show up. So it's like that, that very narrow little, like it's just, it's going to be like a random Monday where, or, or Sunday like or shouldering, something like that. Like shouldering a break or shouldering spring Maybe. break or something like that. It, it's, it could be, it, it, I don't know. <laughs> It's just, it's one of the, it's hard to predict, but you also, in order to do this, you have to have the extra deluxe uh, evening hours at Epcot. That's the only way that this is going to be possible right now, is you need that extra two hours at the end of the night. So it has to be on one of those nights that that's being offered as part of the, the total day. The logistics of that are just, that's a whole nother, a whole nother beast is just picking exactly the perfect right day. It used to be a bit more forgiving in the pre-COVID days. Now it is maybe a handful of days out of the entire year that it could be done with perfect execution. Uh, and the brothers, they had, they had pretty close to perfect execution. Well, you finished up in Walt Disney world and I loved the stories of the cast members who were cheering you on and also let you marathon Astro Orbiter during the fireworks and then people mover after that. I mean, that was an amazing story. You can catch that. Elsewhere, what I want to talk to you about is Leslie and I both have 
a strong affinity for Hong Kong Disneyland. Um, and so as we close out this global ride challenge section, you also said that, you know, that was the park that uh, I'm not sure if you phrase it as surprised you the most or was definitely a very positive experience for you. So I want to hear a little bit about, you know, what did you enjoy about Hong Kong and what about that park made it special for you? Yeah, so that that was easily for me my favorite of the international Disney parks. I really liked the vibe. It had a nice vibe. The people were super friendly and the ride selection was really nice. I appreciated that it wasn't just another clone of best of hits of other Disney parks and everything they did, it felt like it had maybe some roots in things that we've seen here, but they put their own unique spin on a lot of it. Their Jungle River Cruise was the first ride that I did, and the scale that they do that at is really cool, and that finale with the fire and the water rushing and everything was super cool. I was like, okay, that's a that's a really cool way to plus this ride up. And then after that, I went to Mystic Manor, which blew me away. That is the most adorable dark ride. It's original. It's not based on any, any other IP, and... It was fantastic, and I went, wow, we need more rides like this. Super, super great ride. Very, very fun. I got off, and I, my immediate reaction was I had to buy one of the little monkey plushes. Like, I don't buy plushes, but, like, I got off and I saw the monkey. I was like, that was too adorable of a ride to not have a little, a little monkey. Then I got off that, and I went, the next thing was Big Grizzly Mountain. I kind of knew that there was, like, a twist or something with the ride, but I, I don't, didn't know the full kind of thing. That was an amazing coaster. It's like you take a uh, big Thunder Mountain and Expedition Everest and you smash them together and you get this wonderful, cool creation with the these bears that have this surprise look of, you know, it, like on their face when, the, when they set off the dynamite and you launch out and you have this aggressive finale. Super cool. Super cool ride. Um, and I wish we had more stuff like that. You know, I mean, Grant, I love Big Thunder Mountain. Big Thunder Mountain is great. All the Big Thunder Mountains are great. But, this takes that and just elevates it. It gives it this other little like lift, this this, this extra little something, and I really appreciated that. Uh, their uh, their teacups are have a very kind of nice vibe in that whole area. That at night it's lit up and it's super cool. And that's one of my favorite things about Disneyland's teacups is that vibe at night with the lights and the lanterns and everything. And that was just a really great way to end the night there on those teacups with that just cool vibe in the area. You know, it's just, just every, all these little things, just these little nuggets all throughout the park, um, just added up to an experience I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's a really underrated park, in my opinion. I mean, it's, I'm glad to see Disney's starting to put more things into there. The last time I was there, it was pre-Iron Man, pre a lot of things. So, I mean, pre-Castle Redo, all of that. So, um glad yeah, to see. Yeah, and the castle's it. great now, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, we've already alluded to some of this, Nathan. I mean, one thing we want to talk to you about is sort of what you've done is extraordinary and something that may not be attempted or completed again, um, by anybody, but, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons in what you did for mere mortals. Like we said, you know, regular people who were looking, you know, like to find the lowest crowd day or, um, you know, how to deal with sort of a longer trip. Um, we've already talked a little bit about some of these, but, but one other question I wanted to ask you is how did you find reliable information about lesser known, these international Disney parks? I mean, this is something I often bump up against when I'm going to like a regional 
theme park. Nobody's written about it. How do I figure out the strategy of what coaster I need to start with? And I mean, things are written about all of the Disney parks, but certainly not to the same extent as what is available for Disneyland and Disney World. So so where did you figure this out? How did you piece it all together? So for these parks, a lot of it was looking at the park websites and the park apps and just pulling up the app at various times of day on the day of week that I was planning to go and looking at what were the wait times doing um, and things of that nature. One thing I did find is you will get different experiences from park websites if you're looking at their English website or their native language website. Tokyo is very bad about this. The English website is very has a mu- much less information than what you find on the Japanese website. I don't speak Japanese, but when you pull it up on the Japanese website, you can use context clues, try to figure out what's going on. Google Translate can auto-translate certain things. And then if you run into something where it's embedded in an image, I use the Google Translate app on my phone, take a picture of the screen and, and try to translate the text to figure out what it's saying. Stuff like that helps a lot. The next step from there is you try to you know, search online. You just Google searches for the thing that you're looking for, and maybe you find an answer on Reddit or a theme park forum or something like that. You can also just put a blast out on you know Twitter or Facebook or, or wherever you are. Say, hey, has anybody visited this park? I'm looking for this information or these kind of tips. Uh, sometimes people have YouTube videos, things like that. But if all else fails, email the park. Uh, that's one thing that I've done on some of my other travels. Uh, I spent two and a half weeks last year uh, doing a coastering tour of Germany, and I wasn't sure you know, what some of their loose article policies were or if they were going to let me film on the rides because their, their website wasn't super clear. So just wrote out an email, sent it to their, sent it to their email address, and most of them got back to me with, with good information. Uh, you might have a harder time if you're looking at a, a much smaller park in a country that has much less exposure to English. In that case, I might suggest see if you f- can find a friend who's a native speaker of the language of, the, of that country and can help you kind of with some of that. So far, I've had, I've had pretty good luck um, you know, in, in Europe and in, in certain parts of Asia that, that have a lot more exposure to, to English. Where do you find these email addresses? Do you just click on the contact us yeah. page? And yeah, then, so usually and like, like, yeah, like, like a form contact. and then they get back to you or whatever? Some of them, some of them are a form. Some of them, it just posts the email, you know, info at whateverpark.com. Disney stuff, it's a bit more, yeah, it's a bit harder to get. You're not going to get a person that way. One of the, I think, I can't remember if it was, I think it might've been the Shanghai one. It had a, it had a real-time chat feature. And I was able to chat with a Disney agent and get some information about the parks that way. Your mileage may vary, and it's going to really depend on what park you're looking at, where you're trying to go, and what you're, what information you're trying to gather. But a lot of stuff you can really find just looking at the park websites or doing a quick Google search for such and such park, such and such term, and you'll get there. And then that, you know, when in doubt, ask. That's great to know. I mean, I, I think the websites have gotten a lot better. I went to Disneyland Paris last summer and was able to figure a lot out just from the Disney website. But, you know, Disney sometimes is... is uh, skimpy on the on the information <laughs> on their site so getting it from the experts and is, is definitely worthwhile so before we wrap this up i have one nerdy question for you you know leslie and i uh you know leslie uh, people have been asking me for some reason like all week like how we met and stuff like that random people um and we actually met in the family travel space and travel hacking space so it's kind of important to us to know like what airline did you fly 
for most of these flights or what alliance did you use? You know, do did you go like with what was cheapest or did you go like loyalty with, you know, whoever you generally, whichever alliance you generally earn status with? So, you know, give us the short version of what uh, airlines and flights you took. You know, we don't need to hear all of them. Like if it was like all-star alliance, like that's what I want, you know, what wh- what happened there? Yeah. So I'm from Atlanta. So oh, I'll, give Sky three, team. I'll, I'll give you three guesses. Yeah. So, yeah, so Delta where I could, it was Air France uh, from Paris to Shanghai, China Eastern from uh, Shanghai to Hong Kong. I did have to fly JAL from Hong Kong to Tokyo. That was the only non-Sky team uh, in the uh, in the trip. But oh, JAL so nice, though. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it was fun. <laughs> so, well, I, th- only... I, think, I think it was a I think it was a bit of an older aircraft uh, on that on that leg. All the Asian carriers, though, I feel like. Um, are just a step above. We have a direct flight from um, Boston to Tokyo on JAL, but uh, I have to say, I've only flown a business class on JAL, so maybe in economy. Actually, maybe we used to do that Tokyo to Hong Kong flight all the time. It's actually like one of our least favorite flights because when you come into Tokyo, like the mountains create like a lot of turbulence and crosswinds. And so even like going to Taiwan or Hong Kong um, with my wife, or even when we were kids, we would connect through Tokyo a lot and that turbulence um my wife doesn't love turbulence and I'm not a huge fan either so I don't know if you got any of that but yeah it was, so, it was a little shaky coming in but yeah so sky team all the way huh that's, yeah and you burned some cool. points though for some of those flights right burn some sky yeah. pesos yeah I, I posted the number whatever the number was was my out-of-pocket spend I did book a couple flight segments with uh actual sky miles and some well i think one was actual sky miles and a couple others i paid for with card miles um but then i used those savings to be able to afford to upgrade my tokyo to la flight to a delta one suite so that i could actually sleep because i knew i was going from a half day in the park at tokyo disney to a 12 hour insane rush at disneyland and i needed to be as rested as i could and I was able to do that. That worked well. It's the best sleep I've ever had on a flight. And I would love to be able to afford Delta One cabins every time I fly internationally, but I know that's not going to happen. <laughs> what are Delta One, you know, uh, again, my wife and I, we, it wasn't called Delta One at the time, but like over a decade ago, we were flying from, I can't remember, but Asia back to the States. And I remember we were able to upgrade into LifeLad business for only, 50,000 sky miles per person. I'm sure Dang. that, yeah, yeah, that's, that's so what, what, not... what's it looking like these days? So, so I, I, what I did, I, I just paid cash for the tickets. It was about 2,600 bucks for, for that leg. Uh, but for me, it was worth every penny and 20, looking... 2,600 for Delta one, yeah. um, one way from, one way. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty yeah, Cause I, I've, I've been looking at flights um, and it's 2,600. Like I've been looking for summer flights to the South Pacific and it's 2,600 in premium economy one way. So yeah, yeah that's pretty the, uh, the, the Air France ticket from, uh, from Paris to Shanghai, uh, their first class cabin was like 15,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As you do, as you do. We keep you on this podcast. We'd make this like a triple episode if we could, but, uh, I know we want to, to wrap it up, but before we get to sort of the, the final things, I did want to ask you, where did you stay? I haven't heard a lot about the hotels that you stayed in at different, um, on different podcasts. What was say maybe your favorite or, or top two favorites, uh, of where you, where you stayed at these different parks. So for all of these, I stayed at the on-property hotels, uh, that was for convenience sake, so that I was only going 
between the airport and Disney property and then for the early entry benefits. So in Paris, I stayed at Sequoia Lodge, which was absolutely awful. Everybody needs to stay the heck away from that, that hotel. Uh, I don't care how much you have to spend. Stay somewhere else. Please, for the love of all that is good and holy, do not stay there. Cosign. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, then in Shanghai, I had to stay at the Toy Story Hotel instead of the Shanghai Disneyland Hotel. It was fine. But be mindful of the, uh, the fact that the bus to take you to the park gets a very, very long line, and you want to be outside waiting very early for that bus, or you will miss almost all of your early entry time. Uh, as an alternative, just take 20 minutes and walk. Uh, you, will, you will be much, much happier uh, if you do that. In Hong Kong, I stayed at the Hong Kong Disneyland Hotel, which was fine. It was lovely. Uh, in Tokyo, I stayed at the uh, Disney Ambassador Hotel because it was either that or Miracosta. Those are the only options that get you early entry into Disney Sea. And I did not want to have to hop hotels um, you know, from day to day. So I could have saved a few bucks if I'd done that. But yeah, on something of this scale, the, the extra headache of having to switch hotels, is it's, it's not worth it. Then um, in California, I made a questionable decision, I would say. And I splurged for the Grand Californian for its proximity. Uh, to the park for quick, easy in and out because I was going to be so time crunched and was going to yeah, have that that uh, that exit back from DCA to get back into the hotel quickly. Yeah, I lost out on the early entry benefit and all that nonsense. So that, that felt like a uh, maybe not the best decision, but super nice room. Really recommend it. If you can afford it, do it. But uh, then in uh, in Orlando, I was at the All-Star Sports which surprisingly was one of the more comfortable beds of the trip. Uh, I was actually rather pleasantly surprised at, at the all-star experience. Uh, maybe it's just because it wasn't super, super hot. Uh, you know, cause sometimes in the middle of the summer, it can be really hot and humid and those rooms can be kind of, but it was great. Yeah. I have a buddy, uh, old college friend of mine at all-star sports right now. And his five-year-old son saw the pull down bed and immediately deemed all-star sports a five-star hotel. So I told him, I told him he's never going to need to stay anywhere else. He can, uh, you know, they're very money conscious. So I was like, you can stay at all-star for the rest of your life. If your son's going to call that a five-star hotel. Awesome. Hey everybody. Editor Joe here checking in from the future. So our interview with Nathan went pretty long. So we decided to break it up into two episodes. So we're going to be releasing the second half of our conversation as a bonus episode on this feed over the weekend. So don't worry, we're not going to miss uh, or go off schedule. We'll just release two episodes in this week. Want to thank Nathan again so much for coming on. You can follow him at a coaster story with underscores between the three words on Twitter and YouTube. Definitely check him out there. And like we said in the episode, check out some of the other podcasts that he has been on. Because we're ending the podcast here, Nathan had a Disney do or don't for us, but I wanted to leave you all with a Disney do or don't. So my Disney do is if you are visiting the international parks, do take the time uh, unless you're doing a 12 park and 12 day around the world challenge like Nathan was. And again, congratulations to him for completing that. But unless you're doing that, do take the time to spend a couple days in the various places that these international parks are in Paris, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Shanghai, 
all are worth a couple extra days of your time. There's so much to see there, not just Disney. So that is my quick Disney do to end this episode. In part two, we have a fun thought exercise with Nathan that is uh, based on some of the knowledge that he gained in his Round the World Disney Parks Challenge. So look forward to that dropping on this feed very soon. Link will be below after this comes out. Other than that, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. As always, thank you again to Nathan for coming on. And thank you, Leslie, for taking the time to talk to me, even though you are not here. And I will see you not doing the Disney Global Ride Challenge, but maybe doing a Parkeology Challenge at Disneyland. Thanks, Joe. I'll say it for you, Leslie. <laughs>